Morning, everybody. Oh, thank you. (laughs) So uh, we are continuing today in our series on the Apostles' Creed. For anyone who might be new, uh, the Apostles' Creed is an ancient summary of the core beliefs of the Christian faith. We have evidence that this creed was being used in the very earliest days of the church, probably in baptismal ceremonies. Uh, So when the early church wanted to put down in a quick summary what they believed we really need to emphasize core beliefs in the church. This is what they came up with. So um, what we're doing throughout the, the fall is we're looking at each line and we're asking, why is this important? What does it mean? What does it mean when we as a church confess this together? So if you guys have been here, you know the drill. Uh, I invite you right now to stand up if you are able. And we'll begin by reciting the creed together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. All right, thanks. You guys can be seated. So last week, we started the section in the creed that talks about Jesus, and the line that we're focusing on today is, he was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Now last week, we talked about what it means to confess that Jesus is God's only son, which means there is only one person who has ever lived who is fully God in the flesh. God from God. And we looked at the opening of John's gospel where he describes Jesus. And he says that Jesus is the creator of the world. And that he's the source of all life and light. He's always existed. And then John says, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. That light has always shone on the world, but at a particular moment in history, the light came into the world. And what this line in the creed talks about is what happened when he came into the world, what the entrance was like. When the true light that shines on everyone came into the world, he didn't just float down from the sky. He didn't just pop into existence as a full-grown man. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, which means he came into this world much like the way that we all do, but also not like the way that we all do. Right? Like all of us, because... When he first, his physical 
body first came into being, it was just a little zygote, invisible to the naked eye, right? And, and he gestated in his mother's womb for nine months. And then he was born and probably looked just like any other baby when he came into the world. But he's also different from all of us because no man participated in the conception. He was born, but he was born of a virgin. Now, this is probably the point in the creed where modern people are most likely to wince or cringe and say, well, come on. We know now that that doesn't happen. Like, maybe in the ancient world, when people were ignorant and not scientifically literate, they would think that something like this is possible, but we know. We know now, right? We're not ignorant. The ironic thing, though, is that that presumption of ignorance is in itself ignorant, because people in the ancient world knew how things work, at least when it came to this aspect of life. And we see that in the Bible, right? When the angel comes to Mary in the Gospel of Luke and tells her that she's going to have a child, that this child is going to be the long-awaited Messiah of Israel, her first response is, well, how can this be since I'm a virgin? See, because she knows how things work. And then Joseph, her fiancé, when he finds out that she's pregnant, he starts making plans Break off the engagement. Why? Because he knows how things work, right? He, he needs to have an angel, a supernatural intervention, come and tell him, hey, Mary didn't cheat on you. It's okay. You can still take her as your wife. He knew how things work. But God is not limited by how things usually work. God sets up the things the way that they usually work, right? That's what we talked about when we talked about him being the creator of heaven and earth. There is an order that God's designed. He set that up. But if God wants to, he can override the rules. He made the rules, so he can break them if he wants. God set up a system where ordinarily for a conception to happen, a man needs to be involved. But in this case... God overrode the rules, and the Holy Spirit was the only one involved. No man needed. And one of the things that I appreciate about this part of the creed is that when we confess it, we confess belief in a God who's not bound by our expectations. Even if it sounds a little crazy, right? That's what we confess. It is true that most of the time the physical world operates according to predictable Rules, And when you think about it, that's actually a good thing. Because if the universe did not usually operate according to consistent physical laws, it would be chaos. And in that sort of chaos, you would not be able to make meaningful choices. Right? You might say, well, yesterday when we stepped off the building, we floated. But today, who knows? Because the day before that, people were falling. Now you can't make meaningful choices, right? In a world where you can't make meaningful choices, you can't be fully human. It's part of being fully human. So most of the time, the fact that the world operates according to consistent physical laws is a good thing. You know, it's sad when you accidentally fall off a roof, 
But by and large, we want the world to be predictable, right? It has more pluses than negatives. But we should not make this, the mistake of thinking that just because the physical world ordinarily operates according to predictable laws, that there aren't sometimes exceptions. You know, Jesus said that with God, all things are possible. And when we say this part of the creed, we're confessing that we believe that, that we're open to the exceptions. Now, Jesus also said that unless we become like little children, we can never enter the kingdom of heaven. Maybe part of becoming like a little child is being open to the exceptions. Now, I want to be careful here because I don't want to suggest that we should be people who are gullible and just believe every claim that's miraculous. It's not what I'm saying. But are we open to God busting our expectations, <laughs> blowing them away? Are we open to the fact that with God all things are possible? That's what we need to be. Now, besides the scientific objection, there are other concerns that people have about the virgin birth. One of them is that, you know, some people are uncomfortable with it because they feel like God violated Mary in some way. But that's not what the text describes at all. In fact, what the text describes here is remarkably different from what people would have been used to in the Greco-Roman world. Because in Greco-Roman myths, there were all these risque stories about the gods having sexual relationships with human beings, assaulting them, seducing them, that sort of thing. But this story is nothing like that, right? The angel tells Mary that the power of the Most High will overshadow her. And the word for overshadow there, I, I looked it up in the Greek in the Strong's Concordance, and it says, to envelop in a haze of brilliancy. So what you want to imagine when you, when you think of the conception by the Holy Spirit is just like this cloud of God's presence descending on Mary, this haze of brilliancy, and then when it lifts, the baby has been conceived in her womb. She's just as much a virgin after the conception as she was before. I mean, after all, we do confess, confess that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, right? So there's no kind of violation here or anything like that. And then another reason that some people are... Uh, oh, oh, and I forgot to mention. I can't forget this. Mary doesn't object either, right? Mary's not like Moses, <laughs> who says, could you please find somebody else? Right? Mary says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Okay. One other reason that people are sometimes bothered by the virgin birth is because they feel like this miracle is implying that there is something just inherently defiling about sex whether it's within marriage or not, that there's just something shameful and gross about it, and God doesn't really like it, and so, you know, God had to have his son born without any sexual act involved. But that's silly. I mean, the first command that God gives to humanity is be fruitful and multiply, right? So that is not what we should think is the significance of the virgin birth. All right, when we confess this part of the creed, we should have three things in mind. 
Jesus' uniqueness, Jesus' fulfillment of the scriptures, and Jesus' full humanity and divinity. Okay, so let's look at each one of these. First, uniqueness. I don't think I need to talk about that very much. Last week we talked about how there is no one like Jesus. He is second to none. He is the one and only Son of God. God from God. And so it is appropriate that when the true light that shines on everybody comes into the world, that something exceptional happens in that entrance, right? The virgin birth, that's exceptional. That's number one, uniqueness. Second, Jesus' fulfillment of the scriptures. If you've uh, been around here very long, you've heard me talk about this, and so I apologize if you feel like this is getting repetitive, but I just love what I'm about to talk about. So I have to talk about it. One of the earliest prophecies in the Bible, first book of the Bible, book of Genesis, seems to point towards the virgin birth. It's in Genesis chapter 3, and it's at the end of the story of Adam and Eve. You guys probably know the story, right? Adam and Eve are placed in this beautiful garden, the Garden of Eden, and they are told that they can enjoy anything in this garden except there's one tree that they're not supposed to eat from. And God says, if you eat from that tree, then you'll die. And one day, a serpent comes along and deceives Eve. He says to her something like this. This is my, my paraphrase. God's lying to you. God doesn't want you to eat from that tree because he doesn't want you to be like him. And he knows that if you eat from it, you will be. And God wants to be top dog here. So God wants to withhold something that's truly good for you, from, from you. He doesn't really love you. He doesn't really care about you. And so Eve is is tricked. And she eats from the tree. And then Adam does the same thing. And the peace of creation is shattered. Now I know that in the times that we live in, a story like this raises all kinds of questions. All kinds of questions for modern ears. But rather than dwelling on those questions, what I want us to do right now is just feel the truth of that story. The story of Adam and Eve is our story, right? Because at some point, every one of us is deceived into thinking that God is not really good and that he doesn't really have our best interests at heart and that we can't really trust him and that any laws that he gives us are just oppressive, right? At some point, we think that he's trying to withhold something from us You see, the serpent is a liar, right? The serpent says, God doesn't want you to be like him. But what did we hear just a little bit earlier in Genesis when God created human beings? He created them in his image, meaning he created them to be like him. Nobody wants human beings to be more like him than God. But the serpent lies. God's trying to withhold something from you. So we're deceived into thinking that God's laws are oppressive and harmful, that he doesn't really love us, doesn't really care about us. And once we start living out of that mindset, it leads to spiritual death. And it leads to family dysfunction. And it leads to toilsome work, right? Adam and Eve's story is our story. 
But the story of Adam and Eve ends with a promise. And it's actually a promise that's directed toward the serpent. God says to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is a very strange cryptic promise. Theologians sometimes call this the proto-evangelion, which is a fancy word for saying first gospel. Because it's the first place in scripture where what we eventually come to be known as the gospel seems to be at least being hinted at, not being fully proclaimed. The first part of the promise is serpent, you're going to crawl on your belly and you're going to eat dust. Now, I think that that promise should be a big red flag to us that we have to be careful about insisting that this story is all meant to be taken completely literally. Okay, I know for some of you that might be disturbing, but if we want to take that to its logical conclusion, then we have to think that what the story is telling us is that this is how snakes lost their legs. Is that really what the point of this story is? Right? That doesn't make much sense, does it? We know that's not really what the story is about. In the ancient world, uh, the phrases crawl on your belly and eat dust were metaphors for being humiliated and being defeated. And we have a similar metaphor now, right, when we say that somebody bit the dust. So what God is saying here is serpent, who is a representative of the devil. He's saying you are going to be humiliated and defeated. You, the, the representative of the one who leads humanity astray and convinces humanity that God is not really good, you are going to be humiliated and defeated. Now, how is that going to happen? God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, this part is confusing, but it seems to be saying, devil, there is going to be hostility between the offspring of a woman and those who follow you. But one particular offspring of a woman is going to crush you. You're going to strike at him, just like, you know, if you were to bring, try to bring your foot down on a snake, the snake might strike at your heel while you're doing it. You're going to strike at him, but he's going to crush you. Now notice, this, this offspring is just one person, right? Because it says, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, in those days, people didn't talk about the offspring of a woman. Another way of translating that is the seed of a woman. People thought of offspring as the seed of their father. So there's something strange going on here. The, the prophecy seems to be saying that the one who is going to humiliate and defeat the devil is going to be somebody who is an offspring of a woman rather than an offspring of a man. 
And this one offspring that's going to defeat the serpent will crush him but will be injured in the process. That's very, that's very cryptic, right? But looking back at this promise from the vantage point of the New Testament, we should be going, oh, wow, right? Born of a woman. Jesus was born of a woman. Jesus crushed the serpent, but in the process it did hurt, right? He's crucified. So when we confess that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary... Part of what we're saying is that Jesus is the fulfillment of this promise way back at the beginning of the Bible. He is the offspring of a woman rather than the offspring of a man. I love it. All right. Finally, when we say this part of the creed, uh, we are emphasizing that Jesus is fully human and fully God. Now, the first part, he was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, emphasizes that Jesus is fully God, right? No man involved. Second part, born of the Virgin Mary, emphasizes that he is fully human, right? Because he came into this world born, born just like all the rest of us, right? And uh, the way that the early church summarized this was to say, Jesus is one person with two natures, divine and human. One person with two natures. In Jesus, there is this perfect unity of divine and human. And the fancy theological term for this is called the hypostatic union. Can you say that? Hypostatic union. Hypostatic union, yeah. Good, good nice theological word to know. When we say that Jesus is a hypostatic union, what we're saying is that he is this perfect union of humanity and divinity, which means he is not 50% human and 50% divine. He is 100% human and 100% divine. And I know that's hard for us to get our heads around, but that is the mystery that the church has proclaimed now for over 2,000 years. We might not be fully able to understand it, but it is a mystery that we should, we should proclaim. In fact, you know, today people throw around this word heretic all the time. Do you guys hear this? Like people say, oh, that person's a heretic, that person's a heretic. Well, in the early church, the word heretic was really primarily reserved for people who, who weren't willing to confess this mystery. People who either thought that Jesus was not fully human or not fully divine. That was really what got you labeled a heretic. Now, because Jesus was fully human, he had a fully human body. The scriptures say that he grew and he learned. He learned things. Uh, he experienced things in time. That's what human beings do, right? He, he went through a process. That's part of what it means to be human, is to go through a process. He experienced suffering and pain and death. But because Jesus was fully God, he also existed before he had a body. His character was consistently God-like throughout his whole life. He had power and authority unlike anybody else. 
and death could not destroy him. Now, again, I know this is hard to grasp, and I don't pretend myself to fully understand it, but here is a, a, a visual that might be helpful. So let's imagine, we're just imagining, okay, that I'm the son of God, and um, this shirt represents my divine nature, okay? I'm the, the, the true light that's coming into the world. And as I'm conceived by the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb, I put on a human nature. I'm putting on human nature, right? And then I'm born into the world. And what do people see? They see my human nature, right? But as I live my life, and people see the signs of my power and authority, and they see the miracles, and they see the demons being cast out, and they see the wisdom that I'm speaking, right? They start to catch glimpses of the divinity, right? When my humanity is on, is my divinity still there? Right? Yeah, still there. It's still fully divine. But you might not see it. You might just see my humanity. But the divinity is always there. So when the divine took on human, he did not become any less divine. It's important to recognize. But he also really truly took on humanity. He was a real human being. Now why does it matter that Jesus is fully human and fully God? Why is that so important? Well, listen to what the book of Hebrews says. I love this verse. Since the children have flesh and blood, Jesus shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. It's a good verse to think about for a while. Why is it important that Jesus is fully God and fully human? The answer, this says, is so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. And in doing that, free us from the fear of death. It's all about destroying death and freeing us from the fear of death. Jesus shared in humanity so that by his death he might break the power of death. Here's one way of, of thinking about this. A metaphor that might be helpful. Because Jesus took on humanity, he was capable of dying. You want to imagine death like this big hideous monster that eventually gobbles up everything, right? And so Jesus, being human, that big monster came for him. Rawr. Came for him just like it comes for every other human being. But because Jesus is also fully divine, when that monster of death swallowed him up, it got a stomach ache. Because it swallowed up a perfect, sinless man. Divinity. And because of that, it swallowed poison. And so Jesus killed death from the inside and then burst out of the beast to resurrection life, destroying his power forever. 
Now, if Jesus wasn't fully human, death never would have come for him. Never would have swallowed him up. And if Jesus wasn't fully divine, death would not have died. But because Jesus was both, death died. And we can be free. Amen? He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. Fully God and born of the Virgin Mary, fully human, and praise God for that. Lord, uh, we, we pray that you would grant us insight and understanding into these concepts that can be difficult. Uh, we, we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would illuminate them for us, help us to appreciate them and praise you for them, Lord. Father, we thank you for taking on humanity Uh, for living the sinless life that we could not, and for destroying death from the inside. God, I pray that we would live in the power of your resurrection, that we would live free from fear of death, knowing that you have defeated it. In Jesus' name, amen.